you'll take a seat. We've got some announcements, and we have a special guest that I'm about to introduce. But first, we do want to welcome our visitors. And uh, if you've never taken a chance, uh, if you're with us here in person or online, to let us know that you're with us. Uh, Here you can stop by the welcome desk on your way out, and we just love to meet you. We've got a gift for you, and we'd love to follow up with you, as well as online. There's a place to go to let us know, uh, and even how we can be praying for you. Uh, Anytime we have ministry here, we always want to give you an update. And so I want to give you an update of Operation Christmas Child. And if you'll take a look at the screen here, you'll see some numbers. And here at Fellowship, our goal was 500. Now, ultimately, um, these goals, they're really for God's glory. But 579 boxes were given from Fellowship. And we are so thankful for that. We're also uh, a drop site. That means churches in the area can drop off. And we can sort of pack them and distribute them. Uh, And so we had 2,817 here, uh, and many of you were serving, and then also Heart of Texas area, so our region. So take a look at that number for just a minute, 22,021. Let me tell you what those numbers represent. Not only kids around the world who have never, likely never received a gift, certainly not like us, but to get to hear the gospel. It's pretty incredible, and I'll have to admit I have not shared the gospel 22,000 times in my life. Maybe I have, who knows? But ultimately, think about it. The kingdom of God being built by God's people and his churches coming together. And so we want to thank you, Fellowship, for your participation in that. Also, we have another opportunity to bless people here in our area through Mission Waco. So our 5th and 6th graders, that's our live wire ministry. They're doing this again this year. So they're collecting these items that you see on your screen or in your bulletin. Just some, some basic things that we probably come to take for granted, but other people around the city need. And so we want to collect these on Sunday night. That's You can see the date there, December 12th. Um, from 6 to 8, you can swing by and drop them off here in the church. Maybe that's going to be a night where you're looking at lights, make it more purposeful, um, and drop by. And our live wires would like to serve you uh, hot chocolate, hot cider. But what a great opportunity for them to serve and us as a church bless our area. And now I'd like to turn our attention to our special visitor. So I'm going to ask all of you to give Pastor Srinivas Naik a warm welcome. Welcome, Pastor. I'd like to first share with y'all a little bit about what Global Banjar Baptist, uh, Baptist Ministries International is. It's one of our mission partners. And so GBBM, which is in India, is planting churches amongst the Banjara people. And they have a school, the Alethea Banjara School, where not only students are educated, but they're shared, uh, the gospel is shared. And so uh, we have Pastor Srinivas uh, joining us for a couple weeks, and he's joining some other churches around the United States. But we had him here this morning, and we just wanted to, to hear from him. So, Pastor, how is the ministry doing? Uh, Pastor Ryan, thank you so much for having me this morning. And uh, thank you, church, for having me. And uh, this, okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm so grateful to God for uh, uh, him. Uh, he made me to stand before you. And by God's grace, uh, you know, because of uh, all the COVID and so many hostility, even though lots of things going on in India, the ministry among Banjara is growing year after year. So in, uh, 
GBBM was started in the year 2003, and it is our 19th year, and we'll be celebrating 20th anniversary in January 2023. And in this 19 years, we were able to witness 2,500 plus baptisms. And in last year, in 2020, we witnessed 81 baptisms. And by September this year, we witnessed 79 baptisms. And December is our highest numbers would come because that's a kind of harvesting. And GBBM is having 38 men working in 295 villages. So I just want to tell you, we were able to, in spite of all COVID restrictions in the country, we were able to witness to 28,858 individuals. We shared the gospel to in 2020. And in 2021, by September, 30,811 people were witnessed. I mean, uh, we have presented the gospel with them. And uh, we have today 90 uh, village churches with uh, more than 10 believers, 10 baptized believers, and uh, 37 small churches who are uh, with uh, less than 10 baptized believers. So these churches are so precious to us. So uh, when I say these numbers may not matter to you, but uh, to me and to Banjara people, it matters a lot because 32 years ago, when I got saved, I had uh, no Banjara believer in my whole region to fellowship with. If you went to 1,000 or 2,000 Banjara villages and looked for a believer, there were none besides me. But by God's grace, today you go to those places and with the, the help of the churches like you, we are able to witness to all these villages and we see at least one believer in almost all of those villages. That is the difference God is making and bringing among Banjara. Banjara people have been living in India for more than 2,000 years, but only until recent years, God is doing wonderful things, and we are able to go and witness. And we are so blessed to have you with us this weekend. I want you all to catch that for a minute. Uh, through Serenivas, and I know he say, to God be the glory, and absolutely, that's his heart, that is our heart, but through one person, sometimes I'm like, God, how can you use me? Look at how he is using Serenivas to reach people all throughout uh, Hy- uh, Hyderabad, I believe it is, but ultimately in the villages through this school. Yes, Pastor. Tell us a little bit about how Alethea Benjara School is doing, and specifically how COVID has created opportunity. Yeah, Alethea Banjara School is uh, one of our projects to reach Banjara community. And uh, uh, this school was started in 2009. And uh, Fellowship was one of those uh, churches who embraced GBBM and uh, helped us in constructing the classrooms and also sponsoring children attending there. So today we have more than 400 children attending our school. And... uh, we are reaching out them, and uh, five batches completed, I mean, five batches graduated from our school. And all our graduates, uh, you know, it, I'm so proud, and I, I praise God to say this, that uh, uh, more than 70% of our graduates believe in Jesus. And uh, seven, eight students came back and even got baptized. And I got many stories to tell you, maybe 
uh, in the evening i can do that and thank you so much for your support your prayers and without you this would have not happened and we are all partnering with god uh, to reach banjara people and it sounds like covid might have closed the school but what did the teachers do yeah so you know what uh, uh, government has done due to covid uh, situation uh, the, in the whole state uh, almost in whole country it has been closed all the schools were closed but uh, you know we god has put us in a place where we have all the villages surrounded and uh, and our all our teachers live on campus so we brought all our teachers in and uh, then thought what can we do and they came up with a plan okay since children could not come to us why don't we go to them and they prepared activity sheets and uh, uh, the learning processing sheets sheets and uh, two teachers made up as a team and went to one village in the morning and one village in the afternoon and covered all the villages around from the distance uh, anywhere from 10 miles from the school and uh, that way we were able to help the children still keep learning and in many schools in many other areas they just forgot uh, what the children were, were been taught so our teachers have done a very uh, brave thing and a bold thing and the community has appreciated this so much and we uh, gain a lot of goodwill by doing this and they appreciate our work so much and it's so much to be think about i think we've heard that before where he sent them out two by two, right? And so these teachers are going out two by two into the villages. And this is one of the things that Willie has shared with me as well. When you reach a student, you often reach their family. So we talk about the goodwill that has been built in these villages. And then not only these children, but the children's children. And you can take it on from there. So incredible ministry. Uh, so tonight, or actually right after each service, you have an opportunity to learn more about GBBMI uh, ministries, as well as uh, talk with uh, Pastor Sunrabas right after each service in the foyer. But tonight we invite you, we have a reception for him from 6 to 7.30 in our north foyer. And so if you'd like to learn more about the ministry, and as Uh, really the man as Willie sometimes says the man behind the ministry and so i also want to introduce Willie to you Willie you probably know him as watermelon Willie and it's all coming full circle watermelons are sold in july to raise money so that the gospel moves forward to the banjara people and so Willie is also the uh the 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 head of the board um of GBBMI and so i asked him to come up on stage so he and Serena us have a strong partnership together Before we pray Sunrabas is there anything else you'd like to share Yeah uh pastor church thank you so much for your support for your prayers and uh when 3 uh, years ago uh, God has taken our three children but uh, with your prayerful support we are able to continue this ministry I want to ask you one thing uh please do send your pastor to India one more time he has been uh, to india once that's been very long you are blessed with uh, such a man of god filled with uh, wisdom and knowledge in the word of god and uh, we too want to be blessed please lend him for a week or two so that he can come and teach us <laughs> so that's my request to the church and we have been 
requesting Pastor Grant to come over. And at this time, we decided if you don't buy a ticket, you just give, give him some leave. We will find a way to pay for his ticket and take him. Otherwise, I will have to kidnap him. So, well, so thank you so much. In America, we call that a shameless plug. So, <laughs> so that is really good. Well, y'all will have an opportunity to hear and learn more about GBBMI and Serenibus in the four-year after each service. We'd love for you to join us tonight. So, well, if you'd surround Serenibus, I'd like to pray for him as well as this ministry. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're doing that, just want to remind you, if you did not pick up one of these financial stewardship guides, uh, let me encourage you to do so. This, if you want to know how to be a good steward of your resources, the principles that are given in this booklet have been, uh, Karina and I have followed them for years. They've made like all the difference. And uh, this not only will tell you like how to be a good steward of your finances in every area of your life, it'll also give you information on just what's happening at Fellowship, our next steps, and where we're at presently. And I just want to thank you for being such a gracious, generous church. As we're in the month of December, we're really looking forward to 2022. And so I want to make sure that uh, you know where we're at and have our opportunity just to continue to see what God is going to do uh, through our church. If you're online, uh, you can actually go to our website and you can actually even download this and you can have all the information as well. So pick those up. You can find them as you just walk through the doors as well as you leave service. Well, you know, one of the peculiarities of professional hockey is that they have what's called an emergency goalie. Now, this is a situation that's really kind of an honorary position, rarely ever comes into play. But it did. March 29th, 2018, the Chicago Blackhawks were playing the Winnipeg Jets. Um, The Blackhawks' starting goalie uh, had been injured, uh, so they were playing their rookie uh, sub, uh, the second-string guy. And lo and behold, in the third period, he got injured. Let me introduce you to Scott Foster. He's a 36-year-old accountant. He uh, hadn't played a serious hockey game in over 10 years. He did play uh, goalie for Western Michigan University. That's a respectable, serious hockey school, but uh, hadn't played in any serious competition in over 10 years. He was the designated emergency goalie. What this usually means is you just sit up in the press box and eat a bunch of food. But uh, when that rookie goalie, the second string guy, went down, Scott got the nod, and he literally picked himself up I don't know if he was like eating the cheese nachos. You might want to stop that. He made his way, walked down from the press box, got all of his gear on. You're going to need plenty. And he, he says, when I did that, he said, the initial shock happened. I think I just kind of blacked out. He says, the only thing that I remember is someone saying, put your helmet on. Okay? I mean, can you imagine? These pucks coming like bullets at you. And so he did. He made his way on the ice. And I want you to know, Winnipeg totally tested him. In fact, I don't, he doesn't know what actually happened, but like he played like an outstanding game. There were seven shots that were taken. He was able to successfully block all of them. Uh, after the game, he was given the team's belt. Uh, that's what they award their very best player for the game. Uh, social media was just ablaze with this guy. Like, who is this? And analysts couldn't figure out how in the world Scott Foster hasn't been a professional goalie because of how well he played? Now, for Scott, he said, you know, this is something that no one could ever take away from me. 
And he says, it's something that I can go home and tell my kids. I mean, can you imagine like, hey, kids, were you watching the game? I was in it. You know what I'm saying? I tell you what, as, as staggering as it was for Scott Foster, he would have never in a million years ever thought that he'd be playing in a game. It pales in comparison to, to what took place in King David's life uh, 3,000 years ago. There was an event that was completely unexpected, and it shows us that God can birth hope in the most unexpecting ways to the most unexpecting people. And you find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is like one of the watershed moments of Scripture. It's a game changer. And I want you to take a look at how God brings hope. Hope is born when God redirects our plans. So take a look, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So David was in his house. This is in the last decade of his life. Uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, and all the Phoenicians had been instrumental in building a magnificent palace. Stone palace had all the cedar panels. Cedar was the finest wood uh, in the entire land. It was absolutely beautiful. And David is going, something is wrong with this picture. Here I am. I'm living in this glorious palace. It is awesome. But God... And his presence among us, he's dwelling in a tabernacle, in a tent, in just like this portable little building. This doesn't make sense. And so he has this plan, like, I want to do something about this. Uh, So he tells Nathan, look at verse 3. He goes to Nathan, who is a prophet of God. It's kind of like his chaplain. Uh, When David is in exile, a guy by the name of Gad serves as kind of like a prophet, to David and kind of communicates what God wants him to do. But when David starts reigning, Nathan takes, front, uh, he's front and center. And so he goes to Nathan, his good friend, and tells him about his glorious plan of, you know what, I think what I want to do is build God a temple. Take a look right there, verse 3, Nathan said to the king, wow, go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, it's interesting, neither David nor Nathan consult with God. I mean, you can be a prophet, you could be a pastor, and not actually check in with God and talk with him about what you might have in a heart or what you're hearing from others. And they just says, hey, yeah, sounds like a great idea. Why don't you just go ahead and do that? Now, there's no real ulterior motive here with David. This doesn't seem to be anything about selfish ambition like, you know what, from my next act, I'm going to build this glorious temple, right? No, it's, it's not that at all. You may have some experiences like David. Was there a time in your life, maybe when you were in college, in your dorm, maybe when you were in the military, perhaps it was after a retreat or at a camp that you were at at some point in your life, or maybe after a church service, and all of a sudden you kind of saw a trajectory for your life. You saw, like, this is what I would really like to do. I feel like I'm made for this. Why? 
This would be God glorifying, but this is really what I really would want to do with my life. And it seems that like you could see the connections and what you need to do. And I want you to know that that may be from God, but it may not be. You know, it's, it's very difficult to tell whether the dream is from God or not. And it may be that um, as you're evaluating your own life and you're like, well, it's, it's not happening the way I thought it would. And I have thought about this a lot and I had a real passion for this. It doesn't seem to be working out that way. Or at least it's not the way that I thought it would. If you are in that situation, and I would have to say that most of us probably are, then you can relate to David when it's what's about to happen. Look at verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? So there's this first question, and God says through Nathan, ask David, are are you the one? Did I ask you, David, to build me a temple? Did I ever assign that to you? And the idea is that, well, it's you're assuming like why well, it's a negative response because indeed God hadn't asked him to do that. And look at this, verses six and seven. He says, For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David is asked by God, Did I ever ask you to do this? And the second question he asked is that, Did I ask anybody in Israel to build me some sort of temple? I've been dwelling in that tabernacle. That is by my design and my choice. What God did ask the leaders of Israel to do is to shepherd his people. God was going to manifest his presence through his leaders. He didn't ask him to build a temple, and God is bringing that to his mind. It's very interesting. God has the prerogative on how he is to be worshipped. The idea that, well, I'll just do whatever I want or worship God in whatever fashion that seems right to me, that's not how God sees worship. Worship is all about Him. It's not about your entertainment. It's not even about your preferences. It's about how God chooses to be exalted, what truly lifts Him up and exalts Him. Worship is not some sort of human-centered activity hoping that you have some good feelings. It's all about God and how he has designed to be exalted. And he says, did I ever ask anyone in Israel to build me a temple? I asked you to be shepherds. It's the great metaphor for leadership. It was used all throughout the Mediterranean uh, region 
to refer to a leader is to refer to them as shepherds. It is the finest metaphor. If you're a leader of anything, your family, at work, at school, on your team, if you want to be the best leader, be a shepherd and all that is entailed with that. And so God asks this question and presents it to him. And I find that David is standing there and he's like, whoa, when he hears this, it's like broken dreams. I, I have this great plan, noble plan. It would be awesome. It's in my power to do this. And God has said no. Have you ever experienced that? Boy, you really wanted this. And you trained for this, and you got the education for it, and you thought a lot about this, and this was a focal point of your entire life, maybe. And God said, no. Stopped you in your tracks. It's not sin. You may have great resolve, but what God is doing is he's showing, I'm redirecting you. And David had to learn this. And friends, this is hard. God wants his servants to learn how to accept the disappointments of life. I mean, I want you to know, just like even saying that, <laughs> it's difficult for me. Because I've got some, I would say, some significant disappointments. I really wanted it to go this way. I, I could taste it. I gave myself to this, and that's not how it's going to work. And I've got to learn how to be okay with that. A.T. Pearson, the great pastor, author, and missionary from the 19th century, he had this statement. Disappointments are his appointments. Disappointments are his appointments. God has a different plan, a better plan. And I want you to know that hope is born when God redirects our plans. Let me show you how else hope is born. Hope is born when God reveals his covenant promise of an eternal king and kingdom in David's line. Take a look at this. Look at verse 8. So David is standing there, and he's, he's, he's probably just crushed. Like, <laughs> But look at this, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. So God says, listen, David, let's rehearse your history. I took you from when you were a shepherd, and I have made you a ruler of my people. Does anybody know a shepherd? Anybody? We didn't have to be in first service. Uh, I don't see anybody. You know, like growing up in Montana, uh, there were shepherds, but you never saw them. They kind of live like isolated from society. They literally live with the sheep for long periods of time in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. They were like obscure, unknown, marginalized. And God says, David, you were a shepherd, and I took you, and I formed you and fashioned you. I trained you. I molded you. I'm the one that puts you even in this position. I took you from obscurity, and I gave you this position as king. 
And then beginning in verse 9, in the Hebrew text, God is going to make 10 I will statements. They are promises made to David, his posterity, and to the people of Israel. They are unconditional. God's going to do this. All David can do is receive it. David does nothing. This shows the power covenant nature of God. And so beginning in verse 9, he says this. God says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of great men who are on the earth. A great name, a name like Abram. That meant everything to the people. To have a name that was great, a reputation that was strong, untarnished, glorious, admired. And God tells David, I'm going to make you and give you a great name, an outstanding reputation. And furthermore, in verse 10, he's going to give him a secure dwelling. The land of Israel is no longer going to be overrun like in the time of judges, you know, where they just were hanging on for dear life most of the time. Look at verse 10. I also, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Just like Israel had gone through repeated attacks by their enemies during the times of judges, God says, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to give them peace. And then look at verse 11. He says, not in the days, like informally, verse 11, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Do you get this? David had the grandiose plan of making God a house, a temple. And God says, listen, no, I'm going to make a house for you, a dynasty, a lineage of people, a lineage of kings. I'm the one who is going to do it. Now, we know like royal families are referred to as a house, right? Like you've ever heard of the House of Windsor in Great Britain, right? Recognize those folks, right? It's the royal family. They're all getting along right at the moment here, right there on that picture, right? It's the house of Windsor. God tells David, I'm going to make you a house. And the verses that we're about to read are like one of the great mountain peaks of biblical prophecy. So much hinges on what God is about to declare in establishing this covenant You see, God has promised a Savior, a Redeemer, a Messiah. It gets all the way started from the fall in the garden. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin willingly, Adam plunges humanity into the depths of depravity? Do you remember that God made a promise that Satan, the one who drove all of this wickedness, that, that there is going to be one that's going to crush Satan's head. It's not going to be an angel. It's going to be a man. And then in Genesis 12, we find out that it's actually through the family of Abraham 
that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we find that it's this ruler, this one, is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And then we also find then from this passage right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is, this one is going to come from the line of David. In fact, Micah will later say that this one will even be born in the city of David, namely Bethlehem. And so God establishes this covenant. Look at verse 12. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God says, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. So God says, I will raise up your descendant. This is going to be Solomon, his son. But when you look at the, the scriptures, they are speaking one who is greater than Solomon that will actually eternally accomplish this. And it's interesting, that is how Jesus referred to himself. Remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus refers to himself as the one who is greater than Solomon. That's not a flippant statement. It's meant for you to see that this one is the one who is going to hold the throne of the kingdom forever. The right to rule is always going to be in David's line. And notice what it says. I've, I've got underlined this because this is so important. Verse 13, God says, I'm going to do this. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When is forever end? It doesn't. And then he says, I'm going to have a father-son relationship with all of the kings in your line, but especially this one king who will be eternal. So you see in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is actually literally quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, speaking of Jesus, the eternal king. There is this father-son relationship. But this father-son relationship is actually going to exist with all of the kings in the line of David. And just like any father that actually really loves his kids, you're going to discipline your children. God is going to discipline future sons, grandsons, great-grandsons of David when they disobey, when they're out of line, when they disregard God, or they just are running into rebellion and wickedness, God says, I will discipline him. In fact, you see it right there. Look at verse 14. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. So God says this, David, those kings in your line, when they disobey or they disregard me, I'm going to bring discipline. And you're like, well, what would that look like? Just like he says here, through military armies and adversaries. That's how it's oftentimes referred to. God will raise them up. God will use wicked people. They could absolutely care less about Yahweh, the one true God. He is so powerful and so sovereignly in control that he can use those kind of armies to discipline his people. Why? 
because kings got wicked. They disregarded God. And God makes a promise. I'm going to treat him like a son. You know, the ultimate seed of David will not be a sinner like David. And no matter what David's line does, watch this next verse. God's promise will not end. It's unconditional. Look at verse 15. He says, But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. My loyal love, my chesed, I will never remove it from your line. Now, I took it away from Saul, his misguided, wicked heart, doing things on his own. He took it away, but God is making a promise to David, I am going to build you a house, a dynasty, and my loyal love will never depart from your line. That doesn't mean that there will not be an interruption to the physical throne, okay? It doesn't mean that David's sons are going to live like forever, like on the earth. It does mean, though, that the right to rule will never be interrupted in the line of David. It's interesting. The physical throne of one of David's lineage sitting on it, it did get interrupted. Remember the guy's name? King Zedekiah, you can read about it in 2 Kings 25, 586 BC, Babylon comes in, they take over, Zedekiah hauled off. And there was this interruption. No line of David is sitting on the throne, but I want you to know that the line of David continues. And God is making this promise, and so he then summarizes this promise in verses 16 and 17. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So here in verse 16, God kind of like capsulizes the provisions of this Davidic covenant. It's a promise of a house, a kingdom, and a throne. A house where you're going to have a dynasty there are always going to be the royal line, the line of David. It's going to be a throne of sovereignty that will always rest with your posterity, David. And there is always going to be a kingdom. It is going to be in your lineage, and it is going to be an eternal kingdom. I hope you're starting to begin to see just how profound this promise, this covenant that God is making with David. Did you know that there are over 40 verses that are directly tied to this promise in the Bible. This is staggering and extremely significant. He says, your throne will be established forever. And when the people of Israel were going through great difficulty, facing all sorts of persecution, looked like they're going to be kind of wiped from the face of the earth, they would hold on to this promise, this promise of an eternal king, this one that would come in the line of David. And so let's fast forward from 3,000 years ago to 2,000 years ago. There is an angel by the name of Gabriel, and he makes an announcement to a virgin who is betrothed, that means kind of like a, a hyped-up version of engagement, to Joseph. And Gabriel makes this announcement in Luke chapter 1, and he promises that this one, this you are going to have a child, and this child is going to receive a throne, a house, and a kingdom. 
And so, like, perhaps for like the first time, listen to these words. Gabriel tells Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him, pay attention, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Wow, it's kind of like the light bulb goes on. Do you see the brilliance of this prophecy? Hope is born, wow, just as God had promised. And the fulfillment of all the promise to David, this covenant promise, is Jesus, the one who is to be born. And the virgin birth of Jesus is just a staggering declaration that he is eternal. He is the living son of God. And it's interesting, when you look at the genealogies, like in Matthew where it chases Joseph's line, the legal right to heir, guess what? Joseph, the one who's betrothed to Mary, is in the line of David. And when you look at Mary's lineage, you find it in the Gospel of Luke, guess what line is she also a part of? She's in the line of David. Friends, this is absolutely staggering. Who is this God who makes such promises, who records it in the Word with such detail? And the ultimate fulfillment will all be established in Christ's second coming, where he sets up a millennial kingdom. You can read about it in Revelation 19, his coming. Revelation 20, this millennial thousand-year reign of Christ, and he rules and reigns, house, throne, kingdom, forever. God does it. And friends, if you really want hope, hope is found in God revealing his covenant promise of an eternal king and kingdom and the line of David. Let me show you just one other way where we see hope. Hope is born when God reorients our hearts to trust in his revealed word. How is David going to respond to such a covenant promise? I want you to know it is absolutely beautiful. You want to learn how to pray. You want your prayers to be more than God help me to have a nice day? Look at how David prays, verse 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. And he's going to focus on the presence, the present, God's present mercies that God has just bestowed. And he said, who am I, O Yahweh God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, Lord God. And literally, this is the law of man. There is an eternal kingdom and the whole world will be blessed by one man. God, you did this. And verse 20, and again, what more can David, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For, yours, for the sake of your word, 
And according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. Did you see that? For the sake of your word and your heart or your will, that's why you were accomplishing this. And God, who are you that you would even consider me? And then David then looks back at the past and God's amazing grace toward Israel, beginning in verse 22. He says, for this reason, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and make a name for himself and do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you, for you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. And then David then prays, looking to the future. And as it's just been revealed in this covenant promise, look at verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts, is God over Israel, Lord of hosts, speaking of the armies of Israel. He's God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation of your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And look how he concludes it. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Did you see that? You know what makes this so powerful? How does David approach God? Nine times he refers to himself as a servant, God's servant. That, my friends, when you see yourself as a servant, changes your perspective. It totally changes your prayers. It changes how you treat people, engage people. You want this to be a glorious Christmas season? See yourself as a servant. It'll change everything. It'll be delightful for you. And people will notice God is at work in your life. And he is, he is praying the promises of God. If you really want to add depth to your prayer life, pray what God has revealed. It's interesting. Whatever God has said is true. And whatever he has promised, he will do. And that's what he's praying. He's praying what God has already revealed. Now, God actually told David why he got the no on building the temple. You find this in 1 Chronicles 22.8. It was, he had grandiose plans, and Solomon eventually did build an absolutely glorious temple, 
And in fact, you can see a picture of it right here. But God actually told David why he said no. You can find it in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. And it's because of this. God, was, God told David, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8. But how does David respond? We see this glorious prayer, and he's praying that God would put it in action. When we pray this way, we're joining in God's will to see God accomplish what he's already stated. But there's something very profound by how David responds. He responds with absolute gratitude and immense generosity. I don't know how else to even put it. You can read about it in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. You see that David basically supplies everything that will be needed for the building of the temple. He got a no from God to build it, but he gives his entire his life, his wealth, to see that everything that will be needed for its building is going to be in his son Solomon's hands. In fact, you can read about it in 1 Chronicles 22, verses 3 through 5. And David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails uh, for the doors of the gates. And he goes on and talks about all the other things and timbers of cedar logs beyond number. For the Sidonians and the Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. And David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. What a father. You know, there's some examples in David's life where it, wouldn't, it wasn't pretty. And he really messed up. But David stands brilliantly strong here. And you look at his heart, pouring out generosity, gratitude. And he's saying, Solomon, everything you're going to need to the very best of my abilities, I'm going to give to you this for the fulfillment of what God has asked. And we have to ask ourselves, why is this recorded in Scripture? Why is this amazing event recorded? There's two reasons I want to give to you. One is for the processing of our own lives. You know, we find ourselves with broken dreams and promises that are visions that we had that didn't happen. We find like, well, we had it all together in our hands and well, it's all crumbled in our hands perhaps now decades later. They're like empty. We never thought it would work out like this. I want you to know it was not wrong. It was simply not sin for David to have it in his heart. In fact, we know this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. When Solomon dedicates the temple, he makes this declaration in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. He says, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, look at, listen to this, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, he shall build the house for my name. He's saying, David, listen, I commend you that it was in your heart. It was noble and it was great. 
It just wasn't what I had for you. But do you see how it was so great that it was in his heart to honor God in such ways? But yet he got to know. And when you are wrestling with your life and you're like, you know, I really had it planned out and it would have been so much better if it would have worked this way and that situation would have worked out and I've got that promotion or someone would have recognized what I had done. But God said, no, I want you to know it's not because of sin. It wasn't because probably that you had the wrong intention in your heart. God gave a no to redirect your path, to put you on the path that you are presently on, to bloom where you are planted. And so you come with your empty hand and say, God, you know what? I'm yielding everything to you. Fill me, use me, develop me, but I am trusting in you. You know, we have an enemy, though, that wants to convince us, yeah, you know what? There's something better for you, and you've got to messed it up or missed out or God's overlooked you, that couldn't be further from the truth. When I look at a passage like this, when I examine my short little life, and then you start to see what God has done, it fills you with gratitude and desire. God, just use me however you see fit. Remember, hope is born when we believe that God's plans for our lives are best. And then there's another reason why this was given, and that is, for focusing our faith. 2 Samuel 7 is recorded so that our faith will be completely focused on this coming king. Do you know that there is a church today, there is a future for Israel, there is hope for this world because of this promise that God gave? And when you focus on Jesus and you see the magnificence of God, it changes our worship, it changes our generosity, our focus. We want to see the gospel go forth throughout the world. We want to make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because God is glorious. And hope begins when we are truly resting and trusting in him. The crown jewel of Christmas is Christ himself. And do you know how the Bible ends? The Bible ends where our hope begins. You know how the Bible ends? Revelation chapter 22. Final page, very close to the final words, chapter 16 and 17. Listen to this from Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Listen to this. I am the root and the descendant of David. Whoa. Whoa. Where's that from? Second Samuel chapter 7. I'm the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost just come. You see, hope is born with the promise coming of Christ the King. Let's pray. Lord,